You're listening to Spice Radio 1200 AM, and we are speaking to Margreta Dovgal, Managing Director at Resource Work Society. This week's topic is policy dysfunction galore, from snowpocalypse to a constitutional crisis in the making, plus Canada-India relations and the latest from the World Cup in Qatar. Margreta, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Fantastic to be here. Good morning. Now, at least one day each winter in Vancouver, we experience snowmageddon, a light dusting of snowfalls, and chaos reigns across the region. Was this year any different, and can we do any better? I'd say in short, this year was absolutely not much better. Uh, case in point, uh, just a couple of days ago on Tuesday evening, my partner was stopped uh, in traffic at a standstill on Kerr Street in Burnaby, and uh, he got dramatically rear-ended. Uh, it's going to be a hefty repair bill, uh, but that's okay. That's what ICBC is for. Uh, but we did watch the dash cam footage just to make sure we knew what was up and counted uh, no less than three other accidents on the same 10-block stretch. Uh, exact same phenomenon was repli- replicated across the entire city and the region. Uh, you know, I, I saw a very dramatic one from South Surrey of it was like 10 vehicles simultaneously getting hit like dominoes uh, on a very, very slippery street. Um, and ultimately, this comes down to, uh, I think, a lack of preparedness, uh, a lack of readiness for snowy conditions that the rest of the country is pretty familiarized with. Uh, there's a little graphic, a nifty little one that's been uh, circulating on Twitter these days, and it compares annual investments in snow removal and readiness equipment staff across major Canadian municipalities. Uh, predictably, with pretty small amounts of snowfall, Vancouver was near the very bottom of the charts spending about $4 million a year. And, of course, the frequency, the volume of the snow we get is pretty small, uh, especially for anyone that's from another part of Canada. Um, And it doesn't really warrant a massive investment. But I think it ultimately speaks to a challenge that all governments face. And this is the reason I wanted to bring this up. Predicting and responding to the unexpected is really, really hard. Budgets are limited. Resources are limited. uh, And we do need to be thinking about things that are coming down the pipe, so to speak. And, of course, as the effects of climate change intensify, uh, climate change that's being caused by human activities, uh, more frequent and more extreme weather events are going to become routine. Uh, in fact, they're already well on the way there from, you know, last couple of years of storms and fires and heat domes, um, more intense snow and winter storms are a part of this package, unfortunately, and that creates some new challenges for policymakers and for the public. Uh, governments need to adequately prioritize the things that are seemingly far off, out of sight and out of mind. Uh, and if we don't, the public pays the price. That includes things like forest fire prevention and response, especially when redoubling our efforts on small fires uh, or preventing them in the first place goes a really, really long way towards uh, preventing the types of raging fires that threaten lives, uh, people's property, homes, and, of course, air quality in the whole region. Uh, so maybe the city of Vancouver needs more snow plows. Uh, maybe drivers need to invest in snow tires more proactively. But I'd say the lesson here is we need to be thinking about things that are coming down, even if they're not here right in the moment, whether it's uh, related to climate change or it's seismic preparedness uh, for the big one earthquake that so many people have spoken about for so many years. I just want to ensure that we're covering our bases and not making decisions solely in a short-term capacity. Certainly, we definitely need to be more proactive. I think that's what we learned from this recent snowmageddon, so let's hope we do so. Now, shifting gears here, the Alberta government has just introduced its Sovereignty Act after lots of speculation about what would be in it. Tell us about what's in it and what it might mean for Alberta and the rest of Canada. 
for starters, it might help to recap what's gotten us to this point, uh, where Alberta's government is seeking effectively a form of decentralization. Um, you know, our system in Canada of provincial and territorial governments and these pretty clear divisions of power between that level and the federal government mean that we're already pretty centralized. Um, but, you know, Alberta's been discontent, uh, and this isn't a new thing. It's been uh, the case uh, many times over the last couple of decades. Uh, and energy policy is, is certainly not a new gripe, um, but lately their concerns have been uh, with federal laws and uh, policy measures on firearms uh, and vaccine mandates with national applicability, uh, including requiring people going on federally regulated forms of transportation, like airplanes, to be vaccinated, uh, all the way through to approval processes on pipelines and carbon taxes that affect uh, Alberta's industry and oil and gas. And there's continued dissatisfaction with the level of control uh, that provinces like Alberta have over the federal policies that essentially impact Albertans. Uh, Saskatchewan has signaled some similar things. Uh, we had a very different uh, nature of this exact crisis uh, as it related to Quebec uh, many years back, but uh, this isn't a new phenomenon. Um, but the extent to which it's going with new legislation now being introduced in the Alberta legislature uh, is a is a pretty dramatic step. And there were many months of discussing it. Uh, this so-called Sovereignty Act uh, was a major discussion point in the UCP leadership race that uh, now Premier Daniel Smith won very soundly. Uh, and it's finally here. It was tabled. Um, there's been a lot of hubbub. I'm still making my way through the, the legal language there. But what it actually means in practice um, but I, if I had to just give my, you know, two-sentence uh, pitch, um, I think personally it's an inadequate attempt to respond to structural factors that give Alberta and provinces in Canada very little choice. And I really wish that more energy, more focus was targeted on building national consensus, uh, creating a sense of uh, shared vision and purpose about what we are to each other as a country with regional diversity, with demographic diversity, with industrial and economic diversity rather than trying to draw division and to weaken the nature of our constitution. Mm. Now, moving from the local to the international, Canada just released its Indo-Pacific strategy. Where does that leave the Canada-India relationship? Well, the strategy is really just the start, um, but it, it's an important one. Uh, India, of course, is uh, on track to become the world's third largest economy by 2030, having already this year overtaken the United Kingdom as the fifth largest economy globally. Uh, pretty sizable jump. And, uh, of course, uh, within Canada, about 20% of our population has ties to India. Uh, you know, why am I on Spice Radio? <laughs> uh, it's, uh, you know, an, an undeniable fact in this multicultural uh, country of ours. Um, there are many ties from many corners of the world. And uh, ensuring that we're in a good position uh, to not only grow and strengthen trade ties that enable us to have mutual prosperity, but to also improve people ties is a really, really important piece. Uh, you know, personally, I hope that could mean a better visa application process for Canadians. Um, you know, any Canadian without uh, an Indian overseas passport could probably tell you it's a colossal pain uh, to get access. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's, that's sort of the nitty-gritty. On the broader regional side of it, um, this is coming down to uh, a change in the strategy um, by Canada and its allies towards China. The United States is applying massive, massive amounts of uh, pressure to China these days in a pretty unprecedented way. And the culmination of this, you know, simmering decadal tension uh, is essentially the context for this new strategy. Uh, you know, India is a big part of it, of course, but it's trying to further ties with other Pacific nations. Um, and, you know, that's going to mean investments in uh, 
Canadian Navy presence in the region, uh, efforts to promote regional security for uh, nations that we're building these relationships with. Um, but one thing I'll note here, just to wrap up, is some commentators have noted that the missing element is how this new strategy fits into Canada's foreign policy. And if I can be blunt, we don't really have a coherent foreign policy that is distinct from our closest ally, the United States. Um, I love that there's things that are uniquely Canadian about how we deal with the world, the fact that, uh, you know, feminist foreign aid is a defining trait of uh, Canada's uh, relationships around the world, and especially international aid. Um, but, you know, it's everything from the dispute over the U.S.-Mexico-Canada uh, agreement, uh, the replacement to NAFTA, uh, all the way through to the United States uh, prioritizing its own citizens for vaccination, even when there were agreements lined up with Canada to procure vaccines during the pandemic uh, that forced us to look much further afield in places like Europe during the pandemic, um, we can't really trust the United States to put our interests first. And good foreign policy tries to get the right balance between self-interest and cooperation uh, towards things like mutual prosperity and security. And in this rapidly changing world, defining what we want to be to the world as Canadians is the first order of business. And then we can focus on deepening ties in a coherent and strategic manner with countries like India. Now, finally, dramatic footage from Qatar has been making the rounds of a man wearing a rainbow armband dragged away from the World Cup stadium by police. How is the world reacting to this? The response has been surprisingly chill, and that should be chilling for anyone who cares about human rights. Uh, and I'm going to spell it out really quickly. Um, homosexuality is illegal in Qatar, like many Gulf states. Um, people get routinely beat, uh, arrested, deported, uh, even allegedly raped by police, uh, which is just so horrific, I, I can't even say. Um, and despite hosting one of the world's biggest tournaments, the World Cup this month, um, there's been a lot of flip-flopping and how these rules actually apply. Everyone's sort of been, oh, you know, you know you're going to a place, you need to respect their customs. Um, you know, I, I would flip, flip the question, um, what should we be expecting of the places that uh, we are doing business with, that we're deepening ties with as far as human rights? Uh, this is a question that we should be asking on trade and who we trade with. Um, I don't think it's absurd to want those that we build these ties with to not um, brutalize and mistreat uh, members of their population for their sexuality. Um, same goes for women's rights. Same goes for minority rights. Um, that shouldn't be an unreasonable expectation, and yet we still find ourselves in this position. Um, and I really hope that in the coming weeks and months, we can reflect on what it meant to proceed with uh, this tournament, even when there were clear concerns and worries from many, many members of the international community. Mm -hmm. Margareta, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. You take care. Have a good one.